Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Todd Jones. Recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Rick Cleveland has been writing about sports for 57 years. Yes, you heard me right, 57 years. And Rick's still writing. It's literally in his blood. His father was a sports writer. His son is a sports writer. And no sports writer in the state of Mississippi can match the career of Rick Cleveland. Not that he'd say it. He's too much of a Southern gentleman, as you'll hear in this episode. And you'll hear a guy who flat out knows how to tell a story. Tell it in a way that makes everything else just fade softly away. You'll feel like you're sipping sweet tea in a rocker on a porch. Enjoy. Rick, you've walked into this Press Box Access Tavern fully warned. Thank you for coming anyway. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, Todd. I'm just I've very enjoyed, happy. I've enjoyed the episodes I've listened to. It's, it's, it's a great idea and a great concept. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My payment should be coming through to your Venmo at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy you've joined us. Uh, any friend of Tom Archdeacon is welcomed here. So thank you. <laughs> Arch, Arch is the best, one of the dearest souls I've ever met. Yeah, he was one of our very first few guests, and uh, Arch uh, Arch kept saying to me, you have to have Rick on. So here we go. We got Rick. Right. And, uh, you know, you walked in here with credentials that few sports writers can match, certainly down south, no question in the state of Mississippi. Rick, unprecedented 14-time winner, Sports Writer of the Year in Mississippi. Hell, I feel like I'm talking to William Faulkner. <laughs> you know, somebody said the other day when they announced this year that, that boy, your daddy, who was a sports writer, would really be proud of you. And I said, yeah, he'd be really proud. He'd say, what happened those other 43 years? <laughs> That's right, right? <laughs> yeah. Win something, then you got to keep repeating it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you've been writing about sports for 57 years. That's just amazing to me. When when you think about it, when somebody says 57 years of covering sports, what do you think of? Well, one thing I think of is that, you know, back when when I started in, in, in Mississippi, it was segregated. Right. You know, I mean, there were, there were white teams and black teams. There weren't mixed teams. And, uh, you know, women didn't play much of anything, you know. Uh -huh. There were no, no women's sports to speak of. Uh, small towns had women's basketball, girls' basketball teams, but there was right. no college basketball or anything like that. So those have been the... And, and of course, television has changed everything. But, uh, right. But... Uh, what yeah, was it like as a, what was it like as a young white guy to come into a segregated sports world like that in Mississippi? 
you know, I had grown up here, so I mean, it didn't. I mean, it was just the way the way things were. I I, I remember thinking to myself, why are they this way? You know, but, uh-huh. but that's the way things were. I remember my daddy. Well, we, you know, I, I grew up in Hattiesburg, and the, the high schools were segregated. But my daddy would take me on Friday nights over across town. Uh, actually, it was on Thursday nights. The the uh, Rowan High was the black school in in Hattiesburg, and we'd go. And they never lost, by the way. They never mm-hmm. lost. They just won every game, and they usually won by fifty five to nothing and I remember my daddy taking and they'd had a special little section roped off there where the white people wow set. And I just remember thinking, golly, these people are having a lot more fun <laughs> right. than the other school I go look at, uh, you know, go watch their games. And um, so uh, you know, I was and we actually would we, we would go watch the 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 black semi pro team. It was the Hattiesburg Black Sox and we'd go watch them play, and then, uh, you know, I was guy when 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 the schools desegregated in Mississippi was around the late sixties, and mm-hmm. one of the first guys that that I covered was Walter Payton. He he, I grew up in Hattiesburg. He was in Columbia, which was twenty six miles away. Wow! Um, and he was on the first integrated team at Columbia High. It's amazing when you think about it, Todd, that, uh, you know, this is like half a century removed from that. Yeah, I think sometimes you know? we think I mean, about history in regards to, oh, that was a long time ago. But no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't at all. Yeah, it wasn't that, it wasn't, wasn't that long ago at all, you know. Right, right. Did, did, played, being a sports writer, did being a sports writer open your eyes uh, to the world? And do you think sports played a part in helping um, make it a better world, especially in the South. In Mississippi, there's no question about it. I, I can't imagine what what desegregation would have been like in a lot of small towns in Mississippi if it hadn't been for sports. Uh-huh. Because, you know, let's face it, Todd. They're down there on the field. I mean, you 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 you're watching it, and you're seeing you're seeing black kids and white kids play together and work together and be better for it. Right. You know, I mean, it's, 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 you can't miss it. It's happening right in front of you. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was quite, quite something. And, and, you know, we just threw, in the last year, Mississippi changed its state flag, got rid of the Confederate battle flag, which is always there in the corner of the, of the state flag. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for sports. Hmm. Uh, that's that was what put the put the flag issue over the hump was, you know, um, black players coming out and saying they're 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 not gonna they're not gonna play if if it if they have to if that flag's flying at the stadium. Uh, the SEC saying we're not gonna hold any of our championship things in Mississippi if you don't change that flag. Right. And and um, and then right on about the week before they were having the vote on it in the state legislature, every coach and athletic director at Mississippi colleges came to the legislature, and and they had a uh, press conference right there 
on the floor of the legislature saying, we got to change this flag. And, mm. and it happened. Right. I mean, like you only, said, <laughs> only about 100 years too late, but it happened. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right? Pretty crazy. Well, I think about you that know. because sometimes people think, oh, sports writers, sports in general, it's just a toy department. But it really is such a part of the culture of the society that we live in that it's intertwined with history, you know, especially uh, in something like race relations. Absolutely. And 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 there there might be other states where sports are more entwined in the culture of the state, but I'm not aware of. Right. In, in Mississippi, the games that we play and go to are an incredibly important part of our culture. Well, let's talk about this. You're age 13 when you first start. Now, this is a family yes. affair for you, sports writing. I mean, you're still writing at Mississippi Today as a sports columnist and sports editor, and you co-host uh, Crooked Letter Sports Podcast with your son, Tyler, who's also a sports writer. And your father, as you mentioned, Ace Cleveland, was a longtime sports writer, and then the um, for 33 years, the final 33 of his career, he was a sports information director at Southern Mississippi. So sports, you grew up with this. I grew up, uh, actually, from the time I was three until the time I was seven, my mother and father were the uh, proctors of the athletic dormitory. Oh, you know all the secrets. Uh, it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my babysitters were the jocks. <laughs> I learned a lot of words I wasn't supposed to know at age five, you know. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, so in my backyard was the football stadium. The, the dormitory was actually underneath the stadium like it is at Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge. Yeah, so you were running around in the press box as a kid, did yeah. you did you just take a liking for the writers and what what was that like? Was it magical for you? Oh yeah, I mean you know they and and after after the games, all the writers would come to our house and my dad would have you know a, a little party for them and and they'd discuss their stories and uh, of course I'd watch the same game so I was I was real interested uh -huh. in 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 that and. Um, you know what I found, Ty, my 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 doctor and and uh, you know the plumbers that came to the house and they didn't seem to be having nearly as much fun as those sports writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know I'm I guess I was like twelve years old when I told my dad that's what I wanted to do. You know, I'm, I've decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a sports writer. At age 13, tell us a story about your first assignment and how did it go? What was it? Okay. Uh, f well, first, when I was 12 and told Dad this, he said, you're going to have to learn to type. you got to type. And so, I, t I actually, I was 12 years old and I was about three feet eight. And I, and I, take, I take typing in a summer school course at, at the university. I audit the class <laughs> and go in and take typing. So I'll know how to type. But my first assignment was actually a game between Brooklyn High School, about 20 miles south of Hattiesburg, and Loosedale High School, about 50 miles southeast of Hattiesburg. And it was at Loosedale. And, of course, I don't have a driver's license. I can't ride my bicycle 50 miles. <laughs> so my dad, my dad drives me down there, and I cover the game. Come back to the house, 
sit down at, at his typewriter at my kitchen table, at our kitchen table, and uh, he leaves the room, and about 30 minutes later, uh, he comes back in, and that white sheet of paper is still clean and white. Uh-oh. You know, I he said he said something I probably shouldn't say on. No, the, go ahead. We're, go ahead. Uh, uh, he said he said, "Well, shit, son, what the hell's going on?" And I said, "Dad, I I, I can't get started. I don't know where to start." <laughs> and he and he gave me right then some of the best advice I've ever gotten as a writer. He said, "Well, son, if I was you." I'd start writing it the way I'd tell it. Yeah. And and I did, and you know it it damn sure wouldn't have won any awards, but it I got a byline in the next day's Hattiesburg American and and uh nobody got libeled or <laughs> you know. It, it, there, there were no four letter words in it. Everything was spe- I could spell. To be honest with you, Todd, at that point at the Hattiesburg American, the qualifications you had to have to write sports where you had to be able to type and breathe. <laughs> well, and I, I got to say, both. that's probably the qualifications that a lot of places <laughs> over the years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, and people ask me, what'd you make for those games? And, and um, you know, I, 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 think I, I think I was making... It was either five or ten bucks a game. Hey. But hell, at 12, 13, I mean, at 13, that was, you know. That's a lot of baseball cards you can buy and put put in a Yeah, that's exactly right. Or a bicycle wheel. A lot of milkshakes, a lot of milkshakes at that time. Well, byline at age 13, you certainly learned how to do it, you know, at the Hattiesburg American. You went on to the Jackson Daily News and then long time at the Clarion Ledger in Jackson as sports editor and columnist. And, we're going to talk a lot about your home state, Mississippi, as we already have. But, um, but you know, sports writing, as you said, it opened your eyes to the world around you. But it also took you a lot of places. You know, it took you out of the yeah. state. You went to 29 Super Bowls, I believe. Olympics, yeah. Masters, U.S. Open. Um, when you think about some of the places you've been, I, one, one place that I wanted to ask you about was, um, was the Masters. I wanted to ask you about one particular year, and that's 1997, when Tiger Woods... The young Tiger Woods won the Masters for the first time. And I, I bring this up because we talked a little bit about, you know, the racial history of the South and sports. You know, Tiger goes into Augusta, Georgia, and just just wins as a young guy, just destroys the field. Yeah. What was that like to cover that event, being a Southern writer and knowing the history and of not just the South, but Augusta and, and just what Tiger did as a player, knowing— the, knowing the course that you, that you did, well, it was it was you know it, it was truly amazing. But I got to tell you, Todd, the one that the the and I can't remember what year it was, but I was there the year Lee Elder was the first black man to play in the Masters, and that was what was really to me. You know, it's the guys like Lee Elder and Pete Brown, who's from Jackson, Mississippi, and, and is, was the first African-American to win on the tour. Those were the guys that I was thinking about when when Tiger won by 12 shots. I was thinking about those guys who did it first, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, I got to know Pete Brown later on. He had gotten his start caddying at a club that's a few miles from where I live. Uh, 
And he, when he started playing golf, he had a five iron and a three wood, and one of them was a right-handed club, and one of them was a left-handed wow. club. Wow. That's <laughs> how he learned the game. Wow. Yeah, that's how he learned the game. And, um, and then he went on to win on the PGA Tour. Why? He, he, he beat, uh, gosh, who was it he beat? He beat a really great player uh, in a playoff to win the San Diego Open. Uh, Nine, I think 1967. Yeah. My my memory may may be a little bit off, but it was like it was in there, and uh, you know, and back then it was. Uh, I think first prize was like five thousand dollars, which seems like peanuts now. But at that time, I, I remember talking to his wife when he went into the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame posthumously and and posthumously and. His wife said, you can't believe what that meant. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I could pay the rent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So those are yeah, I mean, those are the people and the anecdotes that you thought of when Tiger comes in. That's in what 97. I thought of yeah. when Tiger did what he did. And I thought about all the people. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Hattiesburg, and, and uh, I remember when the Hattiesburg, Magnolia Classic, which became what is now uh, the Sanderson Farms Classic standalone event on the PGA Tour. Uh -huh. I mean, it's Mississippi's only PGA Tour tournament. But it was the Magnolia Classic back then, and it started in Hattiesburg. And I think Pete Brown was the f not only the first guy to, black guy to play in it, but was the, maybe the first black person that ever played the golf course. Right. You know? He wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been allowed to be a member, right? Yeah. So that's that's the kind of thing. When 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 Tiger won, I remember thinking, it's it, you know it was just an amazing display of golf. First of all, but I thought of those people that came before. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. I'm you know I think I'm a lot like you in this respect. I'm the history of sports is really what really grabs me. I mean, it's, that's the part I, I, I really love. And, and and a lot of times when I'm watching an event, I'll think about the history of what led to this. And with 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 Tiger at that Masters, that's what I thought. Well, I think that's what made your writing stand out and still does, is that your ability to contextualize and put into a time frame what this, what this means. What It goes beyond what we think we're seeing. And you're able to bring out the humanity of the past people who made this possible or or just some stories behind the scenes about people that you might not have realized. Uh, I think of somebody like, like when you went to the Olympics, you know, I'm thinking about the 96 Olympics and the U.S. women's basketball team, you know, they win the gold medal. There's a lot of stories, right? But you as a Mississippi writer knew how to bring it home to your audience. And there was a player, Ruthie Bolton, McLean, Mississippi. McLean, Mississippi. I think the population now is like 400. <laughs> yeah. Well, at that time, at that time, 21 of them were named Bolton because she was one of 19. She was one. She had 18 brothers and sisters. <laughs> and her father was a Baptist minister and a farmer. <laughs> and I asked him, I heard his name was Linwood Bolton. I remember asking him at those Olympics, I said, well, you know, Mr. Bolton, how? 
I mean, how did how, how were you a pastor and a farmer? And he said, "Well, you know, I had I had nineteen children. I had to feed them." <laughs> and that that's he said that's why he farmed was to feed that family. And I asked Ruthie how she got. She was the most tenacious athlete I've ever coached. Really? I mean, she she got every loose ball. She was the heart and soul of that Olympic team. She was the point guard. Uh, and I, I asked her where that drive and that passion and, and the hustle came from. And she told me, she said, if you're one of 19 kids in your family, you better hustle or you're not going you're not going to get a piece of the fried chicken. You're not going to get the chicken, piece of chicken. <laughs> That's <dinner>. right. <laughs> You're lucky if you get a slice of bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but Ruthie, Ruthie made those Olympics for me. It's interesting that she, her story has stuck with you all these years. Well, I mean, you know, again, I've, I've covered twenty nine Super Bowls, and 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 and. and I'm, I don't remember one where there wasn't a Mississippi guy that was a big part of. You know, we've had. Yeah, let's talk about this. Um, You know, you mentioned Walter Payton. You think about so many great athletes that came out of Mississippi. Mississippi is, you know, it's not a huge population state, but when you think about the athletes and coaches, especially NFL, Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, Brett Favre, Archie Manning, Steve McNair, Lance Allworth. I mean, you can go on and on. I mean, not just great players. These were Peyton, Rice, Favre, and Manning, McNair. Those are some of the biggest names to ever play in the NFL. Yeah, you know, at one time you had uh, uh, Walter Payton was the leading rusher in NFL history. At one time, Brett Favre was the leading passer in NFL history. Jerry Rice, the leading pass receiver and touchdown scorer in NFL history. Steve McNair was the total offense leader in the history of NCAA football at one time. All those guys are from towns in Mississippi of fewer than 7,000 people. There's all small-town Mississippi guys. So so what is it it about those small-town guys that that when you think about their backgrounds and then where they, you know, they go on to become, you know, the pantheon of NFL players— what was it about their roots in Mississippi that you think drove them? You know, them? I've, I've had this discussion with with Archie Manning, who's from Drew, Mississippi, and I, you know, he's got to be the patriarch of the first family of Mississippi of, of football in the United States. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, Archie Manning. Yeah, and I've talked to him about it, and and he thinks it's because of just how important and is and. And what a huge part of the fabric of small-town Mississippi high school football is. Hey. You know, the kids, kids, I mean, you do two you do two things. You go to football, high school football games on Friday night, and you go to church on Sunday morning. Hey. And that, I mean, that's the two big things in small-town Mississippi. Uh, and, well, there's deer hunting on Saturday. Um, <laughs> But but uh, and 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 you know like it's like Archie said you grow up going to the games and it's the big thing in town everybody goes to the games and you grow up dreaming of being one of those guys out there 
play and, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, Nolan Richardson, you know, famously right. said, well, where do you think the slave ships landed? I don't know. That, we also had Lance Allworth and Brett Farr mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of really great white football players came from Mississippi too. Right. I don't know. It, it, it is a huge part of the social fabric of Mississippi is, is high school football, and I think that has a lot to do you with it. You mentioned uh, Walter Payton in high school. Uh, do you remember your first memory, seeing Walter as a reporter? You know, Columbia was on the outskirts of our high school coverage, so we had a stringer over there who called in the reports of all the little high schools in, in Marion County, uh-huh. which is about... 30 miles, and, and the woman's name was Eva B. Beats. And every Friday night, I would get the calls from her. And, and she always asked for me, and she called me Ricky, and she said, Ricky? And she always started like this. She said, Ricky, you ain't going to believe what that Peyton boy did tonight. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. And on the last game of his senior season, she said that she started it out that way, and then she said, Walter scored seven touchdowns, and on the last one, he ran the last 35 yards backwards. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's spectacular. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, and... That's also why none of the three Division One predominantly historically white universities didn't recruit him. It was at the cusp of integration uh-huh. in Mississippi. Uh-huh. And, you know, they they didn't want a black person that was going to last run the last 35 yards back. Uh-huh. It was held against him, right? Yeah. You know, he only scored 464 points at Jackson State. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> You know, he. the other thing about Walter that people, you know, particularly now, because we're getting, you know, a few decades removed from when he played, but uh, Walter not only was a great runner, he's one of the greatest blockers I ever saw. I mean, he didn't, he just, he didn't just block the edge rushers. Uh-huh. He hurt them. I mean, he was something now. I remember his agent, his agent was a Hattiesburg attorney named Bud Holmes. And he called me at the Hattiesburg American one day and said, well, they're having pro day up at Jackson State. You want to ride up there with me? And I said, sure, I'll ride up there with you. And back then, this is 1972 or three, uh-huh. And, you know, there had there were Football was integrated in in Mississippi. I mean, State, Ole Miss, Southern Miss all had black players, but they only had three or four. Right. And and Jackson State for on their senior day, there were twenty four prospects. Wow. Twenty four pro prospects that had to run the forty. Well, of course, when the and 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 two of the top six draft picks were from Jackson State. Walter and Robert Brazil, oh, yeah. another NFL Great player for the Oilers, right? Fame. Yeah. So uh, there are 24 people lined up ready to run the 40 yard dash, and Walter goes first. 
and he knocks off about three 40-yard dashes, and then he goes over and sits on his helmet uh, and watches the other guys do it, and then he he uh, they finish, and they're about to move to the next thing, and Walter said, you hear that high-pitched voice of his said, hey, y'all, watch this. And he gets to, he gets down in the forty yard dash, and then at the start of the forty yard dash, gets in a handstand and handstands forty yards. <laughs> and you know, I tell this story a lot. Wait a minute, explain this. I got to visually think about this. <laughs> he gets on his hands and handstands the forty yards. He never came. He never never rose yards. up to run. He just handstands. I'm talking about he's erect. In. I mean, doing a handstand. I mean, he's not on his knees. He never gets up. <laughs> he, he handstands 40 yards. Oh, my God. And I tell I tell that story a lot when I'm doing speaking engagements, and people say, invariably, they say, well, what was his time? And I said, hell, I don't know what his time was, but it was a world record. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you that, because ain't nobody else can do it. You know? Oh, my Lord, I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, he was just amazing. And, and uh, yeah, Walter, uh, when he signed his first contract with the Bears, uh, I, I, you, you probably couldn't do this these days, uh, but, but at that time, his agent, Bud Holmes, had a Learjet in Hattiesburg, and he said, do you want to ride up there for the contract signing and I said, well, who's on the plane? He said, well, it'll be me, you, the pilot, and his mama, Walter's mama, the sweetest lady who ever lived. And Eileen um, Payton uh-huh. was her name. And uh, I said, sure. And she had never been in an airplane. And uh, I remember I held her hand taking off and landing <laughs> uh, because she was scared. Frightened to death, and um, yeah, so yeah, so I knew Walter pretty well, and the Super Bowl in in um, New Orleans at the Superdome when uh, the Bears beat the Patriots, yeah, just yeah, just and I'll I'll you know I'll never forgive Ditka for not giving him the ball there and letting him score the touchdown instead of. The three hundred thirty pound nose tackle. Yeah, knowing Walter the way you did, do you think that really bothered Walter that he didn't get a chance to score a touchdown? It bothered the hell out of him. He he at first he wouldn't come out for the press conference. Yeah, in fact, Bud Holmes had to go in to the locker room and talk him into coming out and doing the post game press conference. Yeah. Well, you think about you think about you know his career began with slights. Right, I mean, he was fighting oh, yeah. it from the very beginning, coming out of high school, and here it is in the Super Bowl, the greatest moment for the for the Bears and for his own career. And you know, they choose not to give him the ball on the goal line to score a touchdown. And people forget that early in his career, they were terrible. Right, right. I remember uh, it was either his rookie year or his second season. I, I was in Chicago at Soldier Field, and it, in the rushing race, uh, came down to 
seems like it was him and OJ. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, and and and, uh, and he sprained an ankle in the uh, early in the game and and didn't get enough yards and and he finished second in the NFL rushing run on a team that won like two or three games. You know? Right. They were those were some bad bear teams he played in played on early in his career. Right. He's the best. He's the best all around football player I've ever seen. People don't know this, but he punted and kicked off for and kicked extra points at Jackson State. Wow. I think he, I don't know, he threw six or seven touchdown passes with the Bears. I mean, he could he could really throw the ball too. And like I say, he was the best walker ever. I can't imagine how good a strong safety he would have been mm, if he'd right. played on the other side of the ball. He's just Stop. just a fabulous. Fabulous player who who worked harder at it than anybody else. Uh-huh. Archie Manning told me he one time uh, they got together in Jackson and he was going to try to do Peyton's off season workout uh-huh. with him. And and Archie said I I lasted ten minutes. <laughs> he said I was throwing up after ten minutes. <laughs> well, that's what sets the greatness the greatness of sweetness apart, right? You know, Walter. Walter and was Ronnie. running up those hills with, you know, with yeah. that chip on his shoulder to show everybody. Yeah, up the uh, the levee at the Pearl River, which runs right through Jackson. Yeah. yeah. You think about it: Peyton Rice, Archie Manning, McNair. You imagine Brett Favre. He goes on to this career where he becomes, you know, this legendary player. He was kind of like. You know, John Madden's toy, you know, he, man, loved Favre, and Favre became this guy. But you knew him back when he was just a kid, um, you know, growing up. Did you think Brett Favre was ever going to become who Brett Favre became? You know, I had heard, I didn't really cover him in high school or anything. Nobody knew who he was. (laughs) He played for his dad uh, down on the coast, which is a good way to you know, Mississippi's a long state. We're right in the middle. He was way down at the bottom. So I, and he did, he didn't make all state or anything like that because his dad was his coach, and they ran the wing tee. Oh, so he either ran or handed the ball off. He, I think he averaged four passes a game his senior year of high school. Really, I never knew that. He th- wow, the day before National Signing Day. His his senior year in high school, he thought he was going to Delta State, which is a Division two school in Mississippi. He had no Division one offers, uh, and then Southern Miss lost a quarterback. Uh, somebody that had committed to them got an offer from Alabama, and that opened up a scholarship at Southern Miss, and uh, the coach. Uh, called and offered him the scholarship, and he took it. The reason he got number four, the reason he's always he always wore number four is when he got to Southern, you know, he's going through the line and, and to get assigned their, their jersey, and they said, what number do you want? And he said, well, I wore 10 in high school. I'd love to have number 10. And they said, you can't have that one because uh, Reggie Collier wore that. He was a great quarterback at Southern Miss, and the jersey had been retired. 
And he said, well, how about 12? Uh, Roger Stahlback was one of my pl- favorite players. He said, can't have 12, but somebody's already got it. And he said, well, what about 18? I loved Archer Manning. He said, can't have 18 either. And uh, that's already taken. He said, well, what's available for a quarterback? And they said, well, there's four. He said, I'll take it. <laughs> that's how he became number four. <laughs> and and yeah. stayed number four. Stayed number four. And he was, uh, it, you know, when I... First time I covered him, Southern Miss was playing a home game against Tulane. They're down by two touchdowns at halftime. They had planned to redshirt him uh, because, you know, he really hadn't—he had run the wing tee. It was totally different than what they were running at the time. And uh, so they were going to redshirt him, but it was desperate. I mean, they they were not very good at— and they're getting beat at home by two lane by two touchdowns, and in the third quarter, the head coach, uh, whose name was Jim Carmody, said, "All right, we're going to play. Well, we ain't got anything to lose. He's, he's, we're going to have to throw the ball to win this game, and he's the strongest arm we got." So they put him in. Todd, the first time he goes back in the pocket, he throws a, a button hook pattern to a receiver. Uh, I, th- I think it was a slot receiver. And the guy turned around and the ball, like, embedded in his stomach. What? Knocked the Like a cartoon? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, it, 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 it hurt. You could see him visibly get knocked back by the football. <laughs> and uh, he throws two touchdowns and runs for another one, and they come from behind and beat Tulane. The next week, they played Texas A&M, and he's the starter, you know. And, uh, it, 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 you know, at that point in his career, he couldn't do anything except throw fastballs. I mean, he just threw it so hard. Uh, the receivers, you'd go down there, and and the receivers, you'd be interviewing them. And, and you know, that commercial they did where his— uh, where, where the uh-huh. receivers all have crooked fingers that look— deformed in there. It was true. And I mean, they really were. He was Boston uh, digits. Yeah. yeah. And he covered, he covered, I remember covering a game when they played at East Carolina uh, and he leads them down the field there behind with two minutes to go get the ball inside their own 10 and he leads them downfield and they, they scored. But he threw one, I was down on the field already to do the post-game interviews mm-hmm. and uh, and so I'm watching from the sideline, and he throws this 45-yard pass that never gets more than eight feet off the ground. I mean, it's just a bullet, 45 yards across the field. And the receiver turned around just as the ball got there and caught it and goes out of bounds inside the five-yard line. And I... I Everybody was talking to Favre after the game, and I went and talked to the receiver, a little bitty guy. And I said, Alfred, how did you know? What I want to know is how you knew to turn around and catch that ball. He said, because I heard it. Uh I said, what? (laughs) He said, no, I heard the football coming. And I said, oh, you know, come on, Alfred, tell me the truth. And he said, no. 
you can always hear Brett's passes coming. Wow. He said, I mean, have you ever heard such? I mean, I had never heard of anything like that at the time. His passes actually whistled through the wind. Wow. Well, that might explain uh, why he became one of the all-time great quarterbacks in NFL history. And, you know, it's un- well, it's and- unfortunate that, you know, lately Brett's been in the news for a lot of bad things, you know, with the, uh, the news about the uh, the welfare agency that he's been seeking money from and all this. You, you've known Favre forever. What do you think about some of what's going on with an NFL legend like that now? Well... I'm 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 really disappointed in it. And That's the only way to put it. I'm I'm really really disappointed. It's my organization, Mississippi Today, that's been on the forefront of breaking all that news. We have a reporter named Anna Wolf who's just done an amazing job. Yeah, he's of, been seeking uh, uh, you know millions of dollars through the wealth from the Mississippi Welfare Agency to to fund a new football facility at Southern Miss, a volleyball arena. It's been big news down arena. Here. Yeah, it's it's uh, all, all I can say about it is I'm 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 dis- very very disappointed. In yeah, it. yeah. Well, you know, one quarterback uh, that's legendary in Mississippi, who has an unimpeached reputation, is Archie Manning, and you you mentioned Archie, and Archie obviously the father of Peyton and Eli, but you know, young folks might not realize Archie was a, such a great quarterback himself. You know, he went on to play for the New Orleans Saints for uh, 10 years, 71 to 81, and really got his ass beaten on a bunch of bad teams, and yet was a heck of a player. I mean, he was NFC Player of the Year in 1978 on a losing team. <laughs> 79. 79, and he's NFC Player of the Year. Yeah. Uh, but, I remember I remember talking to Roger Stallback, and, you know, Archie and— Roger Stallback played a lot alike. You know, they were they they threw on the run a lot, and uh, both were great athletes—not just great quarterbacks, but great athletes. And I asked Roger, I said, "What what was the difference between you and you know a pro football Hall of Famer that won Super Bowls and everything, and Archie?" And he said, "He said just luck." He said, "I played for Dallas." One coach my whole career, Archie played for the New Orleans Saints. I don't even know how many coaches he had. <laughs> I mean, there were times, Archie tells a great story about uh, being in the huddle and the, the, at that time that they used tight ends to send in the plays with and tight end comes in the play in the huddle and gives Archie the play and says, Archie said, wait a second, who are you? <laughs> the Saints had signed him. The Saints had signed him the day before. <laughs> he didn't even know him. Oh. <laughs> uh, but I tell you what, you know, of of all the people I've ever covered, Archie, Archie Manning is is the best human being. And the way his sons are, it's a direct ref- re- reflection of of the way Archie and Olivia Manning raised yeah. him. Well, Archie, his I legend mean, began back in, in college, you know, 68, 69, 70 at Ole Miss. I mean, 
And Ole Miss. I mean, they wrote they wrote yeah. songs about the band, the Ballad of Archie Who. <laughs> yeah, the Ballad of Archie Who. It was number one. I mean, if you you couldn't turn on a radio station in 1969 in Mississippi and not hear the Ballad of Archie Who. Do you know any of the yeah. lyrics still? Uh I remember it was the the way it finished was the best rootin' tootin' quarterback who ever played the game. <laughs> That's a pretty good yeah. finish to a song. <laughs> yeah, well, he was he he was an amazing uh, player to watch. Uh, I mean, you know, he finished third in the Heisman Trophy voting his senior season, and he missed three games with a broken arm. Right. He played the Sugar Bowl with a broken arm, right? He played, actually, it was the, the Gator, Gator Bowl. Bowl I'm sorry, yeah. They played Auburn, yeah. and he hadn't played. Well, he actually played uh, played against LSU. They tried to play him against LSU, and he had a cast on, on his arm. He played with a cast. Uh, and then he played in the Gator Bowl, uh, and they, I, I think Auburn won the game thirty-five to twenty-eight. But he was, he was fabulous. He was the MVP in the Sugar Bowl as a as a sophomore yeah. at Ole Miss. Uh, he was a he was a great player on an otherwise fairly mediocre team. Yeah. You mentioned um, team. You mentioned him as you know being one of your all-time favorites. You know, obviously a great player. But what what made him so special to you? Uh, as a writer, reporter over the years, the working relationship that you had with Archie, and still have. I'll give you one. I'll give you one story that encapsulizes the way I, why I feel the way I do about Archie is that uh, this is at the end of the end of his career. He's already, you know, he spent all those years getting beat up with the Saints, and then they trade him to Houston. He gets beat up there, and they trade him to Minnesota. And he's the he's they're terrible. The Vikings are terrible. Uh, this is well. Uh, try gosh, this, what would this be? This would be like eighty three, eighty four. Mm -hmm. They weren't very good. Les Steckel was the head coach, and Wade Wilson was actually the starting quarterback. Hey. But I remember they're playing a Thursday night game, uh, and. I remember getting getting home from work and turning it on and just you know hoping that might Archie might get a chance they, they might get so far behind that that he gets a chance to play and that's exactly what happened they they're behind thirty one to nothing at halftime <laughs> and they put they put Archie nothing. in the game they put they put in put Archie in the game I think because they were afraid Wade Wilson was going to get killed let's put the stunt double uh, in Archie. Could, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So they put Archie in, and and he just turns back back the clock. I mean, he's scrambling all over the field, throwing darts. Uh, they end up losing, but he made it a one score game in the fourth quarter. And I had already written a column for the next day's paper, but I I called him in and said, "I'm rewriting. We'll save the other one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rewrite about Archie." And I wrote a column about just. Basically about him turning back the clock after all these years, sure. and uh, so the next afternoon I'm in my office at the Clarion Ledger, and about two o'clock in the afternoon the phone rings, and I recognize the voice immediately. It was Archie, sure. 
and he was calling from Minneapolis. And I said, Archie, what, what's going on, man? He said, I just calling to thank you. And I said, for what? He said, for the column you wrote in today's Jackson Daily News. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, we we got a pretty good circulation in Mississippi, but we don't circulate much in Minneapolis. And how did you, how did you and this was before the internet. Right. He, he said, and well, how did, I said, well, how, how do you know about it? He said, because my mama called me and read me every word of it. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, let's face it, Ty, you've done what I do. I mean, you don't get many calls like that from pro professional athletes. You know, that's Archie in a nutshell. There's so many stories that never get out about things that he's done behind the scenes for for people, mm -hmm. you know, kids that are dying and stuff like that. That, And he, and I, he he's not doing it. He doesn't want it ever to be publicized. He's just doing it because he's... He's basically doing it because that's the way he'd be treated if if it was him, you know? You know, we've talked a, a lot of uh, NFL and um, these great stars that have come out of Mississippi. And as we wrap this up, we'd be very remiss to not sp talk a little bit about college football. And I, I wanted to ask you um, specifically about the Ole Miss-Mississippi State rivalry, the Egg Bowl, as it is known, now, there's a lot of great rivalries in, in sports, especially in college football. When you think Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama, Auburn, you know, throughout the country. Now, the one down in Mississippi might not get as much national pub all the time. But tell us about what it's been like to cover that rivalry, which began in 1901, and why is it so fierce? Well, the rivalry predates football. I mean, uh, Ole Miss was... Guess what you call the flagship Mississippi University created in 1848. Uh, and uh, it was resented and it was considered a school for the for the rich people. Uh, -huh. uh the planters, uh Delta planters, the plantation owners. Uh so Mississippi State was created um, basically for another class of people. You know, they always thought that Ole Miss was the favored university Mississippi State's created. There's a resentment before there was even a sport of football. So it's in the DNA of and the then, rivalry. And, it's it's, it's yeah, baked right yeah. in there. And so, yeah. right. And so when, when, Football gave them a way to like legally fight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they have, they have, right? Yeah, and they. I have. mean, I mean, the whole idea of the egg bowl comes from like the um, the, the, the the egg bowl right. trophy, which was cr created after 1926, the brawl. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, Ole Miss uh, wins a game at Starkville. They're about to tear down the goalposts, and people come out and start beating them with folding chairs and stuff. <laughs> like pro-wrestling. <laughs> yeah, and so they, they uh, the next, the, the student bodies got together and created an egg bowl trophy that maybe they could present instead of 
having the goalpost torn the down. The golden egg well, trophy, they, they called it. The golden egg. Yeah. Yeah, and it became the Egg Bowl, which really interesting, especially for this show, is the reason the Egg Bowl is called the Egg Bowl is because Tom Patterson, do you know who right, I'm talking about? Editor. Sports yeah. editor. Yeah, who later was with the National. Uh-huh. He was spent time in Atlanta and Denver, but he was the sports editor to the, at the of the Claren Ledger and Jackson Daily News. And he had put together the staff. We had he had a staff of twenty seven sports writers, and we were we were winning all kinds of national APSC awards. Right. But we couldn't win special section <laughs> because our teams wouldn't go to a big. Right. You know, they weren't good enough to go to a big event. They weren't going to bowl games. So Tom decided to create his own. Bowl. And he, he started calling the battle for the golden egg the egg hey. bowl. And sure. we would cover that game and put out a special section. I mean, we would have, it was, we'd have 12 writers and eight photographers. Wow. It was like your Super Bowl, right? It was. And and I remember my the first year I was at the Clarion Ledger was in 1979. And my, I, I was, the Mississippi State beat writer. It was Emory Ballard's first season as the head coach at, at Mississippi State, and uh, my uh, I had two assignments that game. I covered the first quarter. I had a uh, my assignments was to write eight hundred words on the first quarter. <laughs> we didn't just do a game story; we did quarter story. Oh my lord! My first that <laughs> I'm writing. I've got 800 words on the first quarter, and guess what the score was at the end of the first Zero quarter? to zero. Zero, zero. <laughs> in my other oh, side. Wait a minute. You know, Lincoln other, said 280 words at whatever at Gettysburg. You had to do 800 words on a zero, zero words first on quarter. a scoreless first quarter, <laughs> yeah. And um, in my other assignment, I had to do a sidebar. I had to follow the bulldog mascot, and another poor guy had to cover Colonel Rebel. <laughs> there, man, the old Miss Rebel. The mascot, mascot beat. <laughs> yeah, I had the mascot, but well, it's still the Egg Bowl, and it did win first place right. in the APSC contest that year. So Patterson got. God rest I his soul. I think it was those scintillating 800 words about a zero to zero first quarter, Rick. I don't think anybody read it. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Well, as an old sports writer in Cincinnati once told me, they can make you write it, but they can't make you read it. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, but it, 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 that's the way the Egg Bowl became the Egg Bowl. And it's still, you know, there's controversy just about every year. It was two years ago, the game was decided when the Ole Miss players um, scored a touchdown in the last few seconds and acted like a dog peeing in the end zone. <laughs> they get a 15-yard penalty. They get a 15-yard penalty. All they got to do is kick the extra point to tie the game and send it into overtime. Well, they get a 15-yard penalty, and it becomes a 37-yard field goal, and he misses it. <laughs> That's one of my favorite uh, touchdowns well, and celebrations of all how, time. That's how Lane Kiffin got to Oxford. They, the Ole Miss coach got fired because of that game. 
I mean, that was the last straw. And he could, if they'd have won the game, he'd have kept his job. Well, I think, I think imitating, a, having one of your players imitate a dog urinating in the end zone might be the last straw. <laughs> well, yeah, and they, uh, uh, it, it did. It got him fired. And, uh, so now Lane Kiffin's the head Changed coach. college football history. Sent Lane to Ole Miss. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Rick. This has been a, a, a treasure trove of great stories from, from down south, and it's been so much fun. There's so many other ones I wanted to hit you up on, but uh, we had some great, great uh, memories come forth here. I really appreciate this. It's been a lot of fun just uh, just chatting with you about some of the Athletes and stories and events that you covered in, a, in an amazing career, 57 years. Well, I, I appreciate Titus. Almost all we needed was a beer, and it had been like we were sitting in a bar telling and we will And we will get that beer sometime, Rick, down the road. We thank you for, uh, for spending time with us and wish you all the best. Great, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.